Welcome to Wireless Future. I'm Emil Björnsson and I'm here with Eric Larsson. How are you? Hi Emil. So I'm great. How are you? Good to see you again. Uh, it's been some time since we recorded, I think. And it's always good to see you over Zoom in your studio suit. Yes, so some people haven't noticed uh, that we're actually not in the same room, even if it looks like that in the video Indeed. version of this podcast. So this is episode 35. 35, wow. Hmm. And today you have found a paper that was uh, quite interesting, The Road to 60, 10 Physical Layer Challenges for Communication in Ears which is a paper that was, I think, published two years ago. And hmm. yeah, the plan for this episode is to talk about these challenges. Uh, what are they all about? And yeah, are these still challenges? Where do we stand? And yeah, various things around that. Mm. Yeah, they should make for an exciting discussion. So first, uh, thanks for sharing the paper, Emil. I mean, so uh, papers with challenges in the title always attract my interest somehow, because as communication engineers, we're continuously looking for things to do and for our grad students to do obviously and uh, perhaps this paper uh, is it was published like two years ago huh? which mm. makes it even maybe more exciting because then we could reflect a little bit over whether the challenges described there had already been solved or at least uh, addressed to some extent exactly and uh, yeah I often get emails from people saying oh what research topic shall I look at uh, or spend my time on in my thesis or whatever and then I usually are uh, directing people to papers like this where people have spending time on actually elaborating on what are challenges what are open problems because that is where you can easily find things to work on as a young researcher. All right so before we go through these challenges I think in, in the first introduction is paper they are describing what they think are three scientific pillars for mm. the development and i think the challenges are then categorized based on these type of things as well so so before we start on going through the challenges i was planning to read those ones so the first one is to push the communication to higher frequency bands such as millimeter wave and terahertz the second one is creating smart radio environments through reconfigurable surfaces and the third one, uh, third one is removing the conventional cell structures, such as self-remassive MIMO, distributed MIMO, or whatever we want to, to call those type of things. And yeah, the first of the challenges then is about reconfigurable intelligent surfaces or metasurfaces or whatever we want to call them and about their implementation. So this is a challenge related to phases and resolutions of the cells or... Mm. What is it? Yeah, so one thing they talk about in the paper is like when you have the atoms in a reflecting intelligence surface, then you'll need to uh, dynamically, dynamically reconfigure the phase shift of each one. And in a real implementation, as far as I understand, then one might not be able to sweep the phase or adjust the phase over the entire range uh, around the unit circle so, so like from 0 to 2 pi that's one thing and also one might build the actual electronics from components that draw the switch between a pre-configured number of fixed phase positions so that rather than sweeping continuously from say say 0 to 2 pi 
uh, you'd adjust in steps uh, zero pi half um, pi three pi half um, and so forth and the paper makes a case that uh, well this can of course be done i mean quantizing the phase steps uh, roughly but there's also a performance loss that comes with it and the numbers were quite staggering if we, you i mean if you go to extremes like the maybe most extreme would be like one bit coinization of the face and then they lost something like 20 db in the beam gain and also got some side lobes and um, then the the paper looked at like well what if now we can't adjust the face from 0 to 2 pi but maybe only from 0 to pi and then no surprise there is also a rather substantial loss i think there's a figure mentioned 7 db in that context uh, so to me it seems that some fair number of bits will be required here for uh, these surfaces to really be useful and also uh, one would have to implement the capability to actually adjust the face over the entire range from 0 to 2 pi which doesn't come as a complete surprise I mean you know if we think of it in, in beam forming it's like well we get a coherent gain as long as we, we the beam components are in the right half plane so that they at least walk in the right direction but uh, that more or less requires that we can go uh, at least it requires that we can go more than halfway around the unit circle when we when we adjust the face uh, so to me rather intuitively reasonable conclusions right yeah i think it, this research is really starting from people for many years building meta surfaces or yeah. similar kind of reflected arrays or things that were fixed uh, but still having this kind of phenomena where you can phase shift the signals within the the, the individual elements mm. uh, it's interesting to that uh, so this is written this paper by people at queen's university in belfast and there is a mix of like communication people like us but also people working with uh, antennas and electromagnetics and uh, i think that sometimes when when you read about the losses from low bits uh, RAS, you hear that uh, oh it's only a few db that you will be losing but but apparently when you use real <laughs> hardware it, it, there are larger losses that that can happen indeed yes sure i mean so there are um, um, of, of, of course the, the, the a number of friends and also former students in fact in the co-author list of the paper here so uh, w one thing that uh, maybe wasn't so obvious is the side lobes aspect i mean it isn't entirely clear why side lobes would be a big deal at all with a reese do you have any insight into that emil right so uh I think traditionally people building antennas or radar system or whatever have been very concerned about side lobes. They want to have one clean uh, beam in the right direction and nothing else. And uh, I think in some situation where you try to just detect angles or signals coming from one angle or so, uh, this would make your modeling of potential directions and stuff like that work much more smoothly than if you have very chaotic mm. side lobes. Yeah, I mean, isn't the point that I mean, if you're going to use the array for like direction finding, then you don't, mm. re you really don't want side lobes. But if you're going to use it for communications, what really matters is the gain in the main beam direction that you're pointing to, whether there are side lobes or grating lobes, or I mean, 
um, of, co- of course those correspond to like receiving or transmitting in undesired directions but that might not matter much for the performance of the communication link eventually what, what, what does matter is the is the gain in the intended beam direction uh, mainly right yeah and if you then aim your Uh, beam or your gain uh, towards a certain location and you have users elsewhere that might be interfered with you then uh, at the end of the day or or at least on the average it's the total amount of energy that is radiated outside your main beam that matters Uh, but uh, of course if it's very flat outside the the main lobe then you always get hit by roughly the same interference levels while if you have big variations it could be a bit more random the interference levels throughout your coverage area yes but even for say a standard mimo array i think this is something a bit of a misconception that grading lobes would be a problem because if you think of it if you have a uniform linear array uh, with half wavelength spacing then as we know we can form a beam and the beam is going to have a main lobe and it will have some side lobes that diminish in magnitude now if we change the um, array topology and aperture let's say that we stretch out the spacing between the antennas then what happens is that the main lobe becomes narrower uh, the gain in the main lobe direction is unchanged but we will see also grading lobes appear uh, in other uh, directions, but the total amount of interference that's spread around is still the same. I mean, the main lobe becomes narrower, but the price to pay for that is that we get the grating lobes. So what used to be interference directed in in directions very adjacent to the main direction of the main lobe now ends up uh, in the grating lobes, which is not necessarily a problem. I mean, in, in MIMO or even multi-user MIMO communications. So I think that's an important point to drive home that grating lobes or side lobes much of the time don't mean or aren't necessarily bad unless the array is to be used for um, angle of arrival um, finding or, or positioning then that could be a different matter. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, and going back now to the, the RAS and their face oh, yes. resolution, for example, <laughs> I, I have at least seen uh, papers with people making prototypes in, from recent years uh, with one bit, two bits and three bit at least. Maybe there are a larger number of bits. Uh, so, so with three bits, you have eight different face values and hopefully they are uniformly spaced between zero and two pi. And in, in those cases, yeah, you can face align things rather well by shifting the uh, the reflected signals. Mm. Yeah. So, w- what are the other challenges in building a uh, RIS, Emil? I think the paper talks about uh, reconfigurability um, dynamically. Is that something you could uh, speak to and maybe relate what the authors here also have to say? Right. So. Uh, as I was alluding to earlier, this is building on the field where people were able to build fixed metasurfaces for a long time. And nowadays we would like them to be dynamically changing and we really want them to change uh, in real time so we can serve use that are moving around, for example. Mm-hmm. So then, yeah, each of these uh, unit cells or elements or what we call them in these reflecting surfaces we need to control them which you can use with some diode uh, for example they can switch between different states and uh, yeah I think the paper is talking about different ways of, of building that and I think 
in recent years uh, there are prototypes that are published and I saw one of them myself at the University of Surrey last year for example what I find mostly a challenge is to not to reconfigure it, but to know how to reconfigure it. Yes. So really to like estimating the channel impulse responses between each one of the atoms and the either the, the access point or base station uh, or or the, the user terminal. I suppose so. So how would that happen in practice? I mean, what is state of the art there really? Obviously one could sound a channel with enough pilots and enough like available dimensions that would be a straightforward, but I suppose the difficulty here is that in an environment with mobility, then you can't afford enough orthogonal sequences to sound the channel completely. So some assumptions need to be made either on sparsity or on covariance or on something else. Exactly. So in a setup with only one antenna transmitter and one at the receiver, about um, like a hundred or so elements in this surface, well, then there are a hundred different dimensions that you can fine tune. And then you typically need to send like a hundred different or you can repeat the same known signal a hundred times, but configure the surface in different ways so that you can observe all dimensions. But as you were saying, if you have ability, that will require a lot of pilot resources to to do that compared to how quickly the channel is changing. Um, And I think that what we have seen in the last few years is a lot of estimation uh, papers first, where they just did this without really commenting on uh, the amount of resource need to spend. And and some of them are even considering some kind of on-off configuration which i think is a bit of a misconception because uh, so so uh, uh, on and off in the sense that the race is turned on and off or each individual atom is turned on and off or exactly what does that really mean so so they have the idea that each individual atom can be both change its face and it can be turned off so it just mm. disappears from your system. And I think this is a bit of a, the, the misconception that usually a diode uh, have two states yeah. on and off. And those re- are represented by two different phase shifts, but they are, both of them are reflecting the signal. Yes, of course. I mean, you know, even an atom that's turned off will scatter the wave, right? So in a way, that's not totally an accurate notion, I feel with this on and off but okay sorry go on yeah i i I guess you could build something where you connect every element to uh, you can terminate it and and turn it into uh yeah something that absorbs more or less everything or something but it sounds very challenging Um, yeah (laughs) right but i think that what i've come to understand is that yes sparsity or specific propagation environment is where these uh, surfaces are shining the most and uh, yeah uh, and possibly the the most uh, uh, important use cases when the channel from the transmitter to the surface and from the surface to the receiver are both of them line of sight dominant mm. so the signal comes mainly from one angular directions should leave in another angular direction mm-hmm. If you have the same configuration, all the elements, uh, the reflection will be like Snell's law. But then by figuring out how you would like to change it, well, then you uh, change the 
the phase shifts over the surface to do mm. this. And but 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 that makes sense. I mean, so if you have a rank one channel from your base station to the RIS and a rank one channel from the RIS to your user terminal, then uh, fewer pilot resources would be required, obviously, to estimate the channels. Besides, if you're on line of sight, maybe the RIS is even like stationary, mounted mm. somewhere. And that means the channel will change very slowly over time, so you could take your time to configure it, <laughs> uh, right. or, or at least take your time to estimate that part of the channel. Yeah, you might know geometrically the, the channel from the, mm. the base station to the wrist because both of them are fixed, but not to the user. So, so we wrote a paper last year where we used some classical erasing the processing methods to try to figure out what is the angle to the user oh, yeah, using these kind of methods. And uh, yeah, the, the problem, of course, when you send fewer pilots than you have uh, RAS elements is that there is always going to be some kind of ambiguity. Maybe there is a direction that looks very similar to you to the right one due to side lobes or other things like that. So in order to make it work with, with high confidence without you seen so many pilots we sort of had to first try out a few configurations and then we look in the direction that seems to be the promising ones and try out new configurations based on those ones until we narrow down the ambiguity to mm. just having one direction that works mm. well yeah that sounds like a clever approach but i mean fundamentally it seems to me there is not much of a difference in estimating a say base station to reese channel compared to estimating a base station to user channel in conventional MIMO in either case. I mean, the difficulty with the RIS is that you have more coefficients to estimate. So you need either uh, a larger dimensional space that can fit the pilots, or you need to rely more heavily on structure of your propagation environment. Hmm. Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so... so uh, I guess it's particularly similar to some kind of analog beam forming situations where you, uh, at the base station, where you, you the signal reaches all of the antenna elements, but we cannot extract them there separately, but only the sum of them, uh, as we would have in analog beam forming. It's the same thing where the, you always need to reflect the signal elsewhere to observe it. Yes. All right, maybe we should move on to the next challenge. And the paper is now going into the cell-free or distributed MIMO scenarios where you have access points spread out over the city or so and serve users without sort of dividing them into cells. And the paper talked about network-centric and user-centric and challenges related to that. So yes. can you say something about that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> So I think there's this notion of user-centric networks where the idea is that, to my understanding, we have like a distributed MIMO or cell-free MIMO system with lots of antennas spread out, right? And, and they are somehow capable of operating together face coherently. And then the idea with user-centric is that only antennas or access points that are close, I suppose in a path gain sense, to the user would actually contribute towards uh, serving that user. To me, that seems to be just the natural outcome of any reasonable downlink power control scheme in a, say, full-blown cell-free massive MIMO approach. In other words, if you just treat this whole network 
as a bunch of access point, potentially very large bunch of access points, they could cooperate face coherently and then you work out for for every user in the system what are the optimal power control coefficients and downlinks so how much of power should each respective access point each access point spend on that that respective user uh, then you'll find that well only the closest handful or so actually spend a significant amount of power and the rest spend very little and if you just truncate them and say that okay only the five closest are to contribute then we have the user centric um, approach, which obviously makes a great deal of sense from every perspective. Right. Um, then, in reality, I think things aren't fully as simple because at some point there will be a scalability problem um, in the sense that now if we just grow and grow and grow the network somehow all these access points will have to be connected somewhere if they are to cooperate face coherently together. And the only practical way of doing that, as it seems to me, is to cluster them together into groups, right? So you get like some geographical area that has a bunch of access points connected to one processing unit, another geographical area has a bunch of access points connected to another processing unit and so on. And then in a way, this becomes a little bit like a cellular system where these clusters now are cells, right? And you'll get border between the clusters where it isn't so obvious how to actually handle. I mean, if the clusters can't cooperate face coherently, then how do you handle interference at the border between the clusters? Conceivably, in in practice, the clusters could be made very large in, in, in terms of absolute geographical area. And then as we know, well... Um, if we let's say double the size of the cluster then the area will quadruple because area scales quadratically with distance whereas the border area scales proportional only to the circumference which scales linearly so the larger we make these clusters the less of a problem with this inter-cluster boundary interference problem be but 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 it doesn't fundamentally go away and this is an insight that seems missing from pretty much every paper that's been written on on cell-free um, and user-centric massive MIMO. And there's no obvious solution to it. I mean, you know, you can't solve a global optimization problem locally somehow. It's mathematically impossible, right? I mean, you might find decent approximations, but you can't solve it to optimality. So <laughs> right. I, I think it does remain a challenge a bit here, what the authors describe in the paper, in fact. Yeah. And I know, Emil, you have worked extensively on power control and... Uh, um, well, signal processing in general, but power control in particular for uh, user-centric um, MIMO networks. Yeah, and I think if you, uh, like me, like to uh, formulate uh, optimization problems that you can solve, then, uh, it, yeah, the, as you were saying, the problem is that there is no uh, feasible formulation, perhaps, where, where you have... Uh, the uh, yeah, where you can solve a global problem because you're not supposed to do it globally. Um, <laughs> no, <laughs> but uh, I guess one of the things that we are doing now with the network deployments is to actually connect base stations to cloud computers uh, in at the edge uh, that might be taking care of all the base stations in a few kilometer radius, for example. Uh, could these cloud computers also be connected to each other so that they could set, pass around some signals to address this interference at yeah, the edges? Yeah, I think they could. I mean, but aren't you just moving the problem up to a larger, to a higher level? I mean, say do you mm. connect these clusters 
groups of them in 10 or 20 or something then you get like super clusters consisting of 10 20 clusters each and then you'll maybe you can cooperate face coherently within a cluster let's say that's possible then you would at some point get like boundaries between super clusters right where you'll have interference problems because the super clusters can't cooperate face coherently but again the, the scaling is favorable here so if you if you if you double the 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 uh, say uh, diameter of, of of such a super cluster then its area will quadruple but the circumference will only double so the like geographical area where you have an uncontrolled or an, an interference problem that you can't easily control will in relative terms diminish um, but fundamentally it is like solving a global optimization or distributed global optimization problem through local computations which in general isn't possible Right. Yeah. So, so even if you can sort of ensure that every user uh, can be served in some sense by all of its nearby access point, maybe belonging to two different cloud computers, even if they exchange information, you can't solve these global problems. You can just resolve some of the interference issues maybe at the local level. Yeah, it seems to me at least it's it's an open, to my knowledge, open uh, question how to actually do it. But the the when the clusters become large enough i mean the the number of positions geographical positions where you get really unlucky will be relatively fewer if you're right in the middle of like two mega cluster networks and they can't cooperate face coherently there might be an interference issue but that on the other hand maybe could be, be resolved through through other means uh, some dedicated spectrum to I don't know <laughs> offload those uh, <laughs> <and> suffer there. <laughs> right. Yeah. They, at least there seems to be a lot of interesting research going on in this area right now. Uh, some of it connected to people working with cloud RAN and open RAN. So I think that is a place to look for people who want to contribute in this. Oh, field. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. All right. The next challenge. Uh, yeah, I think one is uh, power control that we talked about already, right? right? Which is uh, essentially an optimization problem, at least in its canonical form. For a communication engineer, power control becomes an optimization problem. That you can, in some say simplified circumstances, solve to global optimality if you have all information in a central place and a powerful enough uh, machine there. <laughs> um, right. But in practice, I guess you'll apply rather heuristic and simple um, algorithms that can be perform uh, that can be run um, and, and distributed throughout. I think Emil, you had worked on power control uh, both of us actually worked in power control i think we worked m more recently on it <laughs> yeah this is one of the things i've been working on recently and try to, to understand this because if you just consider classical power control in a single cell that is uh, yeah separated from other cells thanks to frequency division or something uh, then it's all about okay you have multiple uses in your cell some of them are near and some are far and those that are far their uplink signal will be much weaker if they transmit with same power so you let the user that is nearby cut down a little bit of this power and in that way you are are balancing between them you get some variation in the power but you can handle it in your hardware uh, but but then when you 
put this into a cell-free system, then you have this user that is near and far to one access point. Mm-hmm. Then you put that another access point that had the opposite situation to them because it's on yeah far away. Then you in the uplink, then who should transmit high power? Or, or not mm-hmm. and uh, so, so yeah i think that's yeah. a good example that really captures the fundamental difficulty of power control in self-free mimo right of course you also have the face angles to play with so you can be informed but um from a power control perspective it's really exactly what you just said and uh, i think in the uplink what i have seen in my work is that is even if it's hard to solve this in an optimal manner if you let people do some simple, uh, yeah, follow some simple policies like transmit with rather high power unless they create a lot of trouble, then you can deal with a lot of things using your beamforming at the receiving access points. So you can resolve some interference with that. The downlink is much more complicated, I would say, uh, because. Uh, yeah, you would like to sort of provide users with somehow similar performance. So how would you do that? Well, one idea would be that if you you look at the users that you are serving as an exit point, then you look at the stronger channels are and you say, okay, let's transmit with high power to those that are far away and low power to those that are nearby. And that turns out to be a really bad policy because you are sort of screaming to reach the one that is far away and you get a lot of interference to those that are nearby. So it's it's more like the opposite you want to do. You would like to sort of opportunistically transmit a lot of power to to nearby users and less power to us are far away hmm. but then those far away might not get any power at all uh, and at then all, yeah. yeah it's all yeah, starts so, to connect and becomes hard yeah <laughs> yeah so i think this one remains a challenge right i mean uh, stated in the paper um, so what other challenges do we have in user-centric and cell-free mimo implementations Right, so the, the signal processing needs to be signal processing, of somehow. course, and especially I just ha- I mean handling the sheer amount of data that we get, right, and baseband data, like where 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 to bring all this data and devising processing schemes that scale favorably when the network size is increased. Um, that I feel a lot of progress has been made. I mean, we have papers together, Emil, for example, where we show that on Uplink, uh, the uh, of course one possibility is to bring all the baseband data to a central unit and then run uh, maximum likelihood detection or MMSE um, filtering or anything favorite method you 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 want. But but we did, gave a paper once uh, with uh, one of my students where we showed that, uh, let's see, so uh, so my student showing the paper was that uh, we could uh, distribute the processing uh, such that the front hall load becomes independent of the number of access points, even if the access points are connected like in a daisy chain or, or Stripe topology. And the, the trick here was that what every access point should compute a sufficient statistic, uh, which essentially is a uh, to take the incoming data and perform a special matched filtering of that. And then forward that on the front hall, and every access point receives from its 
um, upstream from the access point next in line receives its sufficient statistics and then it adds its own and forwards to the next. It becomes a, sort of like an um, accumulate and forward operation that's performed per access point. And it turns out that whatever is received at the central unit is a sufficient statistic for detection. There's also a channel gramian required that needs to be accumulated in the same way. Um, but bottom line is that the frontal load on any segment on the frontal will be, becomes independent of the number of access points. That's a quite important insight, in fact. And on downlink, similar things can be done. I mean, the Gramian needs to be obtained centrally, and that could be done through an accumulate and forward type of process that I just suggested. Um, and then um, on the reverse, the central unit would pre-process the data using this Gramian and each access point would perform a uh, spatial matched filtering before the transmission. But there are also more sophisticated techniques. I think you have some papers you caught or Emil on team pre-coding for uh, right. the downlink that maybe are too complicated to explain in detail on a podcast, but you could give it a try if you like. <laughs> yeah, I think that the principle is not that uh, hard. So to the, the nice thing with the uplink uh, is that uh, the method that you describe is essentially a way of doing a sequential estimation of something where you estimate it and then you feed in with new information at the next access point to happen. And in that way, you don't need to uh, know exactly everything that the previous access point knew, you just need to know their estimate and their, essentially, the accuracy of their, their estimates. Mm. I think there are two ways you can think of it. Uh, you can think of it as a sequential, I mean, if in the MMSC decoding framework, you can think of it as a sequential MMSC or Kalman filter. Right? In the maximum likelihood decoding framework, you can think of it as a, as a consequence that the sufficient statistic for decoding is a linear combination of quantities that are computed per access point, so therefore it's accumulating some will function. Uh, right. But okay, sorry, there's a yeah. <laughs> but if you think about <laughs> the, the the downlink now, it becomes more challenging. So, so say that you you have uh, ten access points, they are uh, along a, a cable, and they they get the data from the access po uh, from the central processing unit to the first access point, which feeds it to the next one, and so on. And they now need to make decision on what to transmit. So the first one doesn't really know anything uh, apart from its own channel knowledge and the data so it needs to make a decision on how to transmit then it can tell the next access point something about what it decided and then the next one can then take its decision on how to improve the transmission based on the knowledge of what had already been decided and to uh, yeah use its own local information to try to improve things and then it goes on like that and in the end the last one can do the finer refinements mm. uh, but since you never go back and, and update things uh, the problem then is that the first ones needs to make decisions that are suboptimal because you you don't have full information mm. but um, yeah so we're saying there is something called team decision theory that can be based on how you can uh, yeah, use statistical knowledge about what the others are going to do or use their, uh, you know that they exist and do you know that you are having a common goal but incomplete information and you can use this when things to devise methods that are optimal in some kind of team manner. <laughs> and yeah, they, they become challenging when you go into the details but, but they, they work uh, 
surprisingly well, mm. I would say. Yeah, I feel like they merit uh, an entire lecture or podcast on their own to explain in, in detail, but maybe the take home for the uh, broader audience here is that uh, signal processing in uh, distributed MIMO, user-centric and cell-free MIMO scales actually rather favorable, favorably, although it might not seem so at the surface, but much of the actual signal processing computations can be distributed uh, and put implemented at, at the individual access points without loss of optimality with respect to a fully centralized implementation. All right. Great, Emil. So where do we go from here? Yeah, I think we are supposed to switch topic towards... Uh, I think that's what we said that we would do. Yes, so we've yes. got one more, I think, to talk about that the paper also uh, has as one of its theme, main themes, and that is the shift, perceived shift to higher frequency bands for, for 6G and maybe beyond. Um, so... Higher frequency bands here, I suppose, means uh, beyond millimeter wave, so up to the terahertz band. Yeah, or just improving and using more the millimeter waves. I, I guess so far there are some deployments in around 28 gigahertz, but you can do things in 50, 60, 70, 80 gigahertz oh, yeah. as well. Uh, yeah, I mean, there seems to be almost the infinite spectrum available up there, of course. The challenges also scale somehow with the carrier frequency, right? Because of uh, uh, Doppler, I mean, co channel coherence time and um, path loss and uh, phase noise perhaps in the circuits. So now well, what are the main uh, or most important challenges for us to work on here? Uh, maybe going from the paper that we read yeah, so, so the paper is first uh, describing three different challenges or categories that are related to, to hardware implementation and verification, I would say. So the first one is uh, how you package and interconnect a transceiver. So uh, if you're not into building actual radio electronics, you might think, oh, let's just take something that was designed for 3 gigahertz and then you go up to 30 gigahertz and then the wavelength is cut by uh, by factor 10 so then you shrink everything down by factor 10 but but then it doesn't work at all like that uh, but uh, the thing that is uh, scaling a bit like that is the antenna elements uh, so if you want to have a certain gain of your antenna well then you it becomes smaller and smaller as you go up in frequency mm. And uh, then uh, this is also one of the main causes for the, the worst pathos that people are talking about, that the fact that you have a smaller antenna at the receiver side. Uh, I mean, but, technically, uh, it's not the path loss, it's the effective area of the antenna that shrinks, right? Um, mm. So if you now have a, a given number of antennas and you want to still maintain them with... Uh, 
half wavelength spacing or some other fixed spacing, then the spacing between antennas also becomes physically smaller. And now these elements are going to be connected with other components. So after the antenna, there will be a, a small wire or something that connects it to different converters and low noise amplifiers or power amplifiers in the up, uh, downlink and uh, dark converters and filters and things like this. And all these things need to be shrinked into a smaller size. Mm. Uh, and you need to, to package the whole thing. And when it, uh, there is a smaller size there, there might be new physical phenomena that are appearing. You might have higher losses uh, of the signals uh, that goes through a piece of metal and they might be coupling with each other. And yeah, you're squeezing everything into uh, the same package is really challenging. Mm. Yeah, indeed. I mean, so I find it just amazing that it's possible to build these components and make them work. And somehow I feel like the those building the microelectronics here are the real heroes. Uh, now, notwithstanding that, of course, there are also challenges for communications uh, theory engineers like ourselves. And maybe one of them is just to realize that um, not only propagation changes when we go up to very high frequencies, but also the behavior of hardware circuits. And there are all sorts of issues here with nonlinearities and distortion and phase noise and out of band leakage and you name it that uh, we can't ignore. And in fact, that should be at the heart of uh, any design on, say, the communication physical layer, be it waveforms or um, signal processing algorithms or anything that goes in there. Right. So a lot of things becomes harder. And uh, as you were saying before about face noise and more generally, I would say a lot of things, uh, imperfections that you have becomes much worse when the wavelength shrinks because then they have a proportionally larger impact on your, uh, yeah, the cleanness of the signals that you can generate and receive. On the other hand, you have more bandwidth to like as to even waste, right? I mean, out of band radiation, which is a huge deal at sub 10 gigahertz frequencies, might not matter at all at terahertz because uh, to start with, I mean, the out of band radiation doesn't reach very far. <laughs> and also you have so much spectrum that you don't really care. You can put some extra guard, ba guard bands in between and that, that solves the issue. So, um, But I think we got to be acutely aware of those aspects and the new questions and issues that appear when we move up so high in frequency. And as you suggested, I mean, the hardware behavior becomes maybe qualitatively not so different but quantitatively in many ways totally different right yeah and just squeezing everything into an area that is uh, I mean all radio electronics in an area that is comparable to the size of your antenna ray become, yeah. becomes really challenging <laughs> so small yeah yeah, and in addition then to this packaging and interconnect uh, between the different components, the next challenge that they are describing is transceiver design, which is of course closely related. Um, and I think here I would like to, to bring up this kind of thing when it comes to to hybrid beamforming or other kinds of ways of implementing things, because 
yeah, as we were, were saying, the, the antenna element with the fixed gain shrinks. So we typically want to have more of them so that we are filling up roughly the same area as before. So then you get more elements. And then there's, of course, two benefits of that in general. One is, yes, you get a better gain. Uh, thanks to many antennas. And then the second thing is that we are um, able to also transmit and receive multiple data streams in different spatial directions. And it might be that as we go up in frequency that these things are decoupling more and more so that we have a beamforming gain that is also always proportional to the number of elements while the number of streams might then start that the channel around us is supporting might become a smaller and smaller fraction of the number of antennas. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, weird emphasis on fraction, right? Because the but you, I think you might be right that uh, the higher we go in frequency, the more of like line of sight like environment we are going to see. Maybe there'll be some specular reflections, but um, just a few of them, and just adding more and more antennas will not resolve perhaps many more. Um, reflecting or scattering centra so there are like some interesting trade-offs there yes yeah one cluster can potentially be divided into uh, multiple resolvable clusters potentially but yeah, uh, potentially. Uh, but i think this then opens up the question whether it is worth building transceivers even if we, we potentially can it which have a full resolution in terms of that every antenna element is connected uh, and i think already now these 5g base stations even in the 3 gigahertz band they have more elements vertically than they have uh, yeah transceiver chains vertically uh, and uh, then as a communication engineer, you start need to uh, also be aware of what is really a transceiver chain. Because I used to think, oh, you have an antenna and you have some box that we call a transceiver chain and then we have the <laughs> digital transmissions. But if you look into that one, it's actually much more complicated because sometimes you hear, oh, if we do, for example, the uh, analog beamforming or hybrid beamforming, you need to have fewer transceiver chains. But, but it doesn't really work exactly like that because if you have a multitude of antenna elements connected to the same uh, signal from the baseband then you still need to have some components uh, that are per antenna mm. so you you take your your signal and then you put your phase shifters for example or it might be a traditional phase shift and it might be something more meta surface likes and after that you would like to put your power amplifiers uh, because if you do it before the uh, phase shifters, you lose a lot of power because the phase shifters are sort of losing a proportion of the power. So you prefer to put them afterwards. And then you might have filters and things like that put at different places as well. So even when you are connecting multiple antenna elements to the same baseband signal, there are some components that scale with the number of elements as well. So it, there's a lot of design aspects here that needs to be considered, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, and I think it's important for folks working in MIMO and communications engineering to really take the red pill and uh, open the books and uh, bo- box and realize uh, what all the components that go inside of that, right? I mean, uh, the, taking the blue pill would be to just pretend that uh, Y is equal to HX plus noise and then keep going. But in reality, things are <laughs> very much more complicated. 
Exactly. So we might come to a, a situation where we, we could build things that are fully digital and perfect, but we don't want to do it for sustainability or cost or whatever reasons. And then we, uh, or maybe just too, too hard to build it, uh, to squeeze it into a small device. Uh, right. There is one more challenge that they are describing called measurements and standardizations. Uh, and this is something that I feel when I've tried to expand my own research, I would say that it would be nice to not only work with math and algorithms, but also do experimental works. But then you also see how it becomes increasingly more complicated because, yeah, if you will do new experimental work, you should probably be at these higher frequencies to motivate that you're doing things that people have been been doing before and then you need more and more equipment of course before all of these transceivers have been designed for commercial you need to buy the, the big signal generators and the big equipment that <laughs> are, are brute force able to do everything you like to do so i think carrying out measurements just becomes more and more more challenging and costs mm. more Indeed. and uh, yeah w one of the potential solutions that I see there or, or way around it is at least that uh, thanks to better computing power uh, the, the ray tracing or electromagnetic solvers becomes more and more capable of predicting things. So I, I think this is where a lot of uh, the design of things is happening today as well. That people are designing very complicated uh, transceivers in software and then they simulate it using more and more refined software to predict the behaviors and then you come to the point where you actually try it out in practice hmm. Hmm. yeah it's good to know so uh, i have less intuition i think for how accurately one can model real propagation using these tools but that's good to know yeah, I think during the, the, the last 12 months or so, I've been receiving de demos of three different companies' uh, software for, for both uh, wow. propagation yeah. modeling yeah. and they have aspects to describe different uh, hardware capabilities that are related to MIMO or, or, or now they try to add RES features as well. So uh, I think there are certainly developments there and, and yeah, using GPUs to... Uh, power those algorithms for the ray tracing mm. or wow. or electromagnetic <laughs> solvers uh, is another good aspect i think that makes it more yeah tractable all right there are two more challenges in the paper and the first is about signal processing signal processing channel yes. estimation in particular i think that oh yeah mentioned. channel estimation uh it is an important one obviously uh, getting channel state information at uh, especially at the transmitter. At the receiver uh, is also important, but somehow we can always make it uh, even without, right, through different blind decoding algorithms and so forth. But getting chance state information at the transmitter is absolutely crucial to make any form of MIMO system, or RIS for that matter, uh, to work. Because if you don't have it, you can't direct power in the, in the appropriate direction in space. Um, so... Um, does this apply both to single-user and multi-user MIMO? Oh, I think so. Uh, don't you agree? I mean, for single-user, you need to know, like, the channel response. You can perform some form of beam steering, maximum ratio transmission, or something of that sort. 
for multi-user it might be even more critical especially if you are to apply like any sort of interference suppression scheme you know like zero forcing transmission for example where you direct power to one user simultaneously place a null in the direction where the other user is located and vice versa uh, so it is critical, be even more critical in in, in multi-user MIMO than single-user MIMO. But right, uh, yeah, I was thinking that in, in the single-user case, you, you since all of the data streams are meant for the same receiver, you could uh, take care of some of the interference uh, issues there. Well, and... yeah, no, fair enough. I mean, or I agree for single-user MIMO, then interference isn't an issue. I mean, it could be an issue between different cells and all of that, but within say uh, within a cell interference is an issue the issue is just to get the array gain so that as much as possible the power ends up uh, at the spot where, where the user terminal is actually located so now uh, general estimation in principle is a rather simple business if you have enough or uh, resources to assign orthogonal pilots then you just have your users transmit pilots and if they are orthogonal to other signals or pilots or anything else transmitted simultaneously on uplink then these pilots will be received interference free and you can estimate the channels to any precision you like more or less uh, the difficulty is when the dimensionality of the coherence block um, doesn't allow for um, enough orthogonal pilots or for long enough pilots to get the integration gain that um, gives sufficient SNR of the channel estimates. And uh, this one I think is, an, is a highly important challenge that's largely, largely unsolved because what happens at the higher carrier frequencies is that the coherence block shrinks. So there is less room for uh, pilot sequences so the, the the pilots will have to be shorter and one might not be able to afford uh, assigning different users orthogonal sequences and so forth and then the only way i mean we're back a little bit the way we started with the race right <laughs> we don't have enough mm. resources for orthogonal pilots then well what to do well the only thing to do is to that we have to rely on some prior knowledge on the channel either like knowing that it's correlated with some specific covariance matrix or that it's sparse in some domain or that we have prior information of some other sort. So I think here uh, the, the paper is spot on on this one and um, estimating channels still remains a major issue for especially high carrier frequencies and, and high mobility environments. Right, and I think you and me have been working a lot on reciprocity-based beamforming under the assumption that the user device only have one antenna. Oh yeah. Because then you can just send an uplink signal and you get uh, everything from just one. But but then yeah, as you add more and more antennas into the user device because of the higher yeah. frequency. So now we have a whole array yeah. at the user. I mean, each should any each antenna be assigned its own orthogonal pilot sequence? Maybe there just isn't enough room for that and. And also on the algorithm side, I mean, I think you, Emil, have worked a lot on uh, 
channel estimation algorithms that work under the assumption of a correlated Rayleigh fading channel so that you you know they have Rayleigh fading you know the covariance matrix of the I mean the spatial covariance of the fading and of course if you know if you have that knowledge you can greatly improve the quality of the channel estimates but the problem is that well, fading isn't the stationary process, right? I mean, if you have an antenna and then you move around a little bit like this in a small wavelength-sized area, you'll see something that looks fairly stationary. Maybe it makes sense you can talk about covariance matrix or the fading, but once this antenna drops behind a, a corner or something here, then a new multipath strong component will appear and this covariance will just change abruptly. And then if you don't track that change in covariance, you could get grossly inaccurate um, estimates. So uh, that's another difficulty here that has not been very well solved, I think. Yeah, I think that uh, when we in academia design algorithms and assumes some kind of stationarity in the statistics and the existence of covariance matrices, I'm not sure to what extent it actually have been proved or demonstrated in measurements that you can actually there actually exist covariance matrices that are, are stationary and uh, of course there, there should exist something like that yeah. but uh, over a short enough time scale there will i mean yeah but... short enough time scale or short uh, small enough physical area will exactly. that physical area be large enough so that you can get the richness uh, of the Rayleigh fading distribution uh, i don't know i no, still haven't know. seen this so kind of so that's an things. open question, I think. So here, I think the the the, the paper now here, um, the I think the authors are spot on this one with channel estimation in short coherence intervals, high mobility, uh, high carrier frequencies, potentially many antennas at the uh, uh, user terminal. Um, Right. And I think the mention when it comes to covariance matrices that maybe one can use random matrix theory methods uh, to deal with statistics. I mean, if you estimate the big covariance matrix, you need to have at least as many observations as there are dimensions just to get something that is not rank deficient. Yes. <laughs> but you need many more than that in order for the, the eigenspaces to be good. And I've looked a bit on that in the past, and I'm not really convinced no, that see, I, uh, random I, matrix I, I, theory I mean, it, helps it, us. It, so, it sounds good, but I'm also not really convinced. And I feel like, well, this might be a potentially good use case for machine learning algorithms that could, like, over time learn what the environment looks like and maybe have access to some side information in terms of geographical location of the user terminal. And but. It's, it's largely an open um, problem, I think, uh, we can say. Yeah, uh, I think it's more like, okay, we will have incomplete information. What can we do with that information that we're having? Because it might be hard to, to fill in with uh, something else that we didn't observe. But yeah, maybe machine learning can, can do it in certain situations. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think the, the last challenge that they're describing is a variation on this theme I would say that suppose you can learn your own channel well but there is interference and then typically your receivers or transmitters would like to know the covariance matrix of that interference so you can use it to design some mm. yeah but it can of course be estimated right I mean just do you stay silent or you subtract your own channel estimate so you get only interference and noise left and then you can estimate the properties of that interference and 
model those accordingly, maybe through some, I mean, in the simplest case, through a correlated uh, Gaussian process that you plug into your likelihood uh, function when you detect your data and so forth. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if that is the the mo biggest challenge uh, compared to all the others we have been talking about. Because, yeah, typically when you'd like to do some kind of regularized zero forcing, uh, the matrix that you invert to figure out where to transmit is essentially uh, the sample covariance matrix of what you, your your data transmission. It's an approximation of that one. So. Uh, so I, I think those type of things have been used for a long time by the industry. Uh, even if it doesn't help, oh, yeah. give you nice mathematical analysis, it, yes. it works. <laughs> yes, it does. Yeah, and of course, there's also the related issue of going beyond uh, Gaussian um, distributions to model interference. Uh, some interference out there has a heavy-tailed distribution, which means that with some probability you get an outlier sample. And uh, typically receivers that are designed for Gaussian noise perform rather poorly if they are subject to noise with outliers. Uh, so that's another little niche where there is a good, um, a good opportunity to, uh, for, for, to make contributions. Yeah, and I think in general, when it comes to some of these estimation methods, that temp temporal correlation can be helpful, at least to some extent, that you, for extended amounts of time, will see the same scattering cluster. So there is some kind of statistics there. But then, yeah, all of a sudden you move around the corner, then it doesn't yeah. work anymore. No, absolutely. I mean, temporal correlation is just another way of saying that the coherence time is longer, more or less, right? If you can like extrapolate or interpolate or... Mm. All right, so I think we have gone through all of these 10 physical layer challenges for communication engineers. So, I think do you we think, did indeed. So. Uh, are they still open challenges? <laughs> yeah, I mean, at least some of them. I mean, as we said at the outset, uh, the paper here that we started off from as um, uh, inspiration for this uh, discussion was published like two years ago. So, probably it was written like almost three years ago. And uh, some of these challenges remain uh, open, definitely. I mean, I think we touched upon especially signal processing aspects and, and of course, those uh, problems relating to the, the microelectronics implementation. Mm. Um, so w much of what's being said here is in, in the paper does re remain relevant to this day and is likely to re remain relevant for, um, for the foreseeable uh, future. Yeah, and I think I think in in some of these challenging areas, there have been uh, quite some algorithmic development in recent years uh, related to, to to some of uh, attempts to deal with some of the scalability or different heuristic algorithms for power mm, control mm. or oh, yeah. uh, different estimation methods and things oh, like yes. that. But uh, uh, I don't think we still have a confidence enough to say that the, these problems have been addressed. No, as you said, I mean, there are lots of papers and algorithms, but most or if not all of them are of rather heuristic nature. And uh, I think it still remains to settle <clears throat> rigorously on a um, theoretical framework here for many of the questions that we discussed. So hmm. absolutely, there is work still left to do 
Great. And <laughs> I hope that uh, our listeners will be interested in, in learning more about these topics and take part of the future development of, of 6G and uh, uh, the research into resolving these challenges. So we put this paper in the description of this episode and also a few other papers that we have been mentioning along the way that might be of interest to, to you to read. And uh, yeah, with that, I think we are done for today. I think we are. So then thanks, Emil. Take care. Th thank you all for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>